stairs, and you're welcome to go to that at this time. It's been specially prepared for you. I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be there and a few other places. And actually, if I were to uh, name a focal text this morning, because this is a general introduction... That text would be Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows his handiwork. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus and we open your word to allow you to speak to our hearts, please open our minds and our hearts to receive what you, the Holy Spirit, desire to say to us. Draw us into your presence, encourage us and delight us with your word this morning. Lord, may we worship you in spirit and truth, even as we have been in song, to do so in the word, that Jesus Christ will be glorified and lifted up in our lives. Thank you for this special weekend here in this country, where we celebrate our independence and our freedom It is a reminder to those of us who know you that the greatest freedom that was ever won was the freedom won at Calvary. Our freedom from the power of sin and from the penalty of death and the opportunity to live eternally in your presence and to live by your presence and spirit even now. We thank you for that. If the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, these last um, number of months, I've been talking about all the truths of the Bible that have their foundation in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And uh, I hope that you have followed that throughout this period of time, that you uh, realize, if not before, you realize now, that every major doctrine of the Bible, every major teaching actually begins in Genesis, and that it hinges on the literal truth of Genesis. Um, If you turn these three chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, into merely a poem or an allegory or a a spiritual myth that just um, gives us... uh, you know, creation by way of of an analogy, all of those doctrines lose their foundation. They they become like floating points out there with no anchor. And so my uh, first purpose as we spent these months together was to show you how every doctrine is in fact rooted in these chapters. Now we're going to turn the corner this morning. And we're going to approach Genesis 1, 2, and 3 from the question, uh, does what the Bible says square with the evidence? Is the Bible objectively true? And can we test it uh, in terms of you know, what we see out there, specifically in terms of science and the Bible? And uh, we're going to spend a few months uh, delving into this topic. And so this morning I want to give you an introduction to this new section as we look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in terms of the creation account, 
the universe, cosmology, uh, how the universe uh, developed and all of that kind of thing. We began to explore uh, those questions together. Why is it important that we do this? Well, I, I think there are two reasons. Um, first of all, the Bible is rooted in a context of time and space and history. God has given us His Word um, not as simply a book of sayings. You know, uh, there are some religions that merely have a book of sayings, of wisdom statements, and, and you can just read thoughts and ideas about life. The Bible is actually written in a context of time and space and history. It's written in terms of people and events, and it references kings and, and rulers and uh, nations and all of those kinds of things that the story of the Bible unfolds in the context of Abraham and the Chaldeans and Egypt and uh, moving into the Promised Land and the Canaanites and and then the time of Christ in Jerusalem and Palestine, but also the Roman Empire and Caesar. And all of the Bible is rooted in this framework of history. And if the history is not valid, then how can we know if the spiritual truths are valid? God has given us His Word in, in a framework that we can evaluate. Because you cannot presume to speak with authority about heaven and hell, or who God is, or the nature of supernatural realities. You cannot hope to speak with authority about those things. You can't see them. You can't examine them. You cannot evaluate them. They're beyond our ability to understand on a human nature, on a human plane. So God has told us these things in a context that we can evaluate, that we can examine. And, and in essence, He is kind of offering us an invitation. Check out what I have to say. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But, but the Bible is not just a spiritual book that's, that's hung uh, in, in midair. It's, it's spiritual truths cast in a framework of human history that we can explore. The second thing that we need to realize as we come to this is that as we move into this arena, we have to ask the question, why study this at all? Can we use a defense of the Bible to win people to Jesus Christ? And, and I want to tell you that the upfront answer to that is no. Um, we will never argue anyone into the kingdom. Uh, we cannot persuade people rationally to believe. And if we do persuade them, <laughs> manage to accomplish that, the only thing we have won is an intellectual affirmation of the philosophy. It does not mean they're born again. Uh, it doesn't mean that they've seen their sin or come face to face with the cross or bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. We cannot rationally bring people into the kingdom by argumentation. And the reason is because the Bible says that sin has blinded the eyes and minds of unbelievers. You know, try explaining 
the, the aroma, the color, the beauty, and the texture of a rose to someone who cannot see, cannot hear, and cannot feel. That's the condition of the person without Jesus Christ. You are trying to explain to them spiritual realities, and they're not able to see. They can't hear, they can't understand, they cannot perceive. The Scripture says that the Holy Spirit must open their minds. There must be an illumination, there must be a work of God that is already underway to create a condition where faith can arise. And so, the way to reach unbelievers is to pray for them and to ask the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been praying for someone and questions arise, God may use your answers. Always be ready to give a reason for, uh, uh, for your hope and faith to those who would ask you. Um, we need to be ready with an answer that is reasonable. But we need to do that in a context of prayer. So, if we cannot persuade unbelievers to become Christians by this approach, and if we are already believers, then what's the point? Why, why do this study? And I would say to you that there are a couple of reasons. One is it brings glory to God. It does bring glory to God to examine His world, to explore His universe, to ask questions. Uh, I'm going to bring this verse up time and again as we go through, but Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it is the glory of a king to uncover it. And so God has hidden all kinds of marvelous and precious and wonderful things uh, in his universe. And it is a a marvelous thing to explore and, and uncover those. It brings glory to God. And when we do so, we worship. But the other thing is, is that you remember the question that uh, Satan asked Eve in the garden? Has God really said? Well, that's not the only time he has asked that question. To bring doubt upon what God has said is a common approach of temptation. In every realm, you know, he questions the, the validity of what God has said. He questions whether you heard it right. He questions whether it's true. He questions God's motives. He always presents to us that kind of an argument. Has God really said? Or, put another way, God couldn't possibly mean whatever. And we're presented with that kind of an argument. And so, it fortifies our faith to have an answer. To say, yes, God has really said, and it is true. I want us to understand this morning that God does not chastise us for examining His Word in terms of the context in which it's written. Uh, Historical understanding of Scripture, uh, exegesis, all those kinds of efforts to lead out the meaning of Scripture are blessed and honored by the Holy Spirit, provided we start at the right starting point. And and I submit to you that the starting point is not intellectualism or rationalism. The starting point is humble faith. He that comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And so we, when we start on our knees with humble adoration of Almighty God in dependence upon Him, and we invite Him to teach us by the Holy Spirit what He means by what He has said, He will open our eyes to all kinds of wonderful mysteries. If we approach the Bible purely as intellectuals who bring our commentaries and our language text and our lexicons and all of our education to bear on the Scripture and assume that by intellectual reasoning alone we are going to find the truth. The Scripture says God has hidden these things from the wise and prudent, but He has revealed them unto babes. And so we have to approach the Scripture rightly. But when we do so, God will honor that investigation because it is a glory to Him for us to discover the truth. So as we come to the, to the subject of the Bible and science this morning, uh, you know me pretty well, I think. I have to introduce uh, the whole study. So today's message is introducing the study, and what you just had was the introduction to the introduction. And now I'm going to give you the introduction. Uh, the, <laughs> the truth about the Bible and science. Roman numeral one, if you have your outline in front of you, I've given you a more detailed outline than usual, and I almost finished on time this morning, despite its two-page length. But um, the first thing that we need to recognize when we talk about the Bible in the same uh, arena as science is we need to understand that the Bible is not a textbook about science. Okay? God did not give us the Bible to explain the material universe to us. He gave us the Bible to explain our problem and His solution. He gave us His Word to show us what went wrong with us, who He is, who we are, how we relate to one another, where the problems lie, and how to come home. The message of Scripture is about redemption and returning to the Father. And so, it's not a book about science. It's not a book about the material universe. And God, I don't think, had it as His priority informing us on those topics. He wants us to understand salvation, although He has given us the message in that context. It is rooted in a context of space and time and history. And part of the reason for that is so that to the open heart and the open spirit and the inquiring mind that is humble before God and seeking truth, we can discover that what God has told us about unseen Realities, And I put it that way because it's interesting in the book of Hebrews that the Scripture describes that great company in chapter 11, that hall of fame of faith, as people who looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, not an earthly dwelling, specifically true of Abraham. And look for a city that has foundations. I'm talking about spiritual realities that are more firm and more certain than this material universe in which we live. If, if we just understood today how much space there is in this room, and when I speak of space, I'm speaking technically as the absence of matter. If we understood how much space there is in this room, we would all get very nervous. 
because you would fear any moment of falling through the chairs and through the floor and through the earth and ending up who knows where, because there's more space than there is matter. There's more nothing in you than there is something. That's totally lost on some of you, right? (laughs) Imagine an atom in a football field whose nucleus is about the size of the football on the 50-yard line, and the electrons of the atom and whatever are about the size of the outer perimeter of the football field, the track that runs around it, and that's the only matter there is, and all the rest of it is space. God holds all things together by the word of his power. He's the one that holds it up. He's the one that holds us together. Reality, in the permanent sense, is spiritual. This is temporary. The earth and and all that is in it is passing away along with its lust. But the one who serves the will of God is the one who lives forever. So God has given us the truth about eternal realities in a context of things that we can examine and test. We can look into history. We can dig up the past in archaeology. We can discover writings that say, indeed, Quirinius was governor of Syria at a time when Jesus was born. Isn't that amazing? People doubted that for a long time because they couldn't find any evidence of it in history until somebody dug up a tablet one day in the Middle East that testified to this Quirinius guy that Luke mentions. We can discover again and again and again, that the truth of God that we cannot see is rooted in a truth that we can investigate because God upholds it. Jesus says to um, Nicodemus, you remember that conversation that they had? And he says at one point, verse 12 of John chapter 3, if I tell you of earthly things, and you do not believe me, how will you believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? Do you see what Jesus is doing there? Saying to Nicodemus, if I tell you about the things you can see and explore and examine, and you don't believe those, how can you believe when I tell you about things you need no access to? cannot see and cannot test. And when he moves on to the question of born again in that same context, he says, the Holy Spirit, no one can fully comprehend. We don't, he's like the wind. We don't know where he comes from and we don't know where he goes. But what we do see is the evidence of his passing. And even as it is difficult for us to understand the mystery of the wind... You can see the trees sway and the grasses blow and the waters ripple and you know and you can feel the breeze and you know that there is an effect. And he says the Holy Spirit is like that. Born again is not a mystery. The process is a mystery, but the fact is not because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. If a person is born again, their whole life is changed. Their perspective is changed. Their behavior is changed. Their language is changed. Their yearning and wants and desires are changed. Their, their entire being is transformed. And we see that in front of our face. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, God gives us eternal truth 
alongside of physical, material evidence, and you can see them together in that context. So we should not be afraid to study the Bible and to study science, math, and physics, and whatever. The Bible does not contain a periodic table of the elements. You cannot find a chapter and verse that will expound on the Pythagorean theorem. You will not find anything about physics described in those terms in Scripture. But what you can find in the Scripture is what we should expect is that every time the Bible references those realms, it is true and trustworthy. We can rely upon it. And so we should not be afraid to investigate both the Scriptures and the universe because the only truth there is to find is God's truth. And I want to underscore that and reaffirm it. I think part of the trouble we have today is that far too many committed followers of Jesus Christ are turning away from the sciences as a focus of their life because they don't see a future in that or else they're turning to the sciences at the expense of their faith. But we do not need to be afraid of pursuing the sciences as such because In science, you're looking for truth. In mathematical proofs, you're looking for facts. You're looking for truth. In physics, you're looking for an understanding of why things behave the way they do. And when you find the answers to the questions you're pursuing in all of those realms, you will never find an answer that is out of harmony with the Bible. Because if God made the world, and God inspired the Scripture, and God cannot lie, then the only truth we will ever find is God's truth, and it will always be in harmony and be consistent. So what can we draw, what conclusion can we draw from that? If you run down a scientific theory and come to a conclusion that is in contradiction to the Scripture, guess what? What's your first thought? Science is wrong. Wrong conclusion. Back up. (laughs) Try again. You, You got the answer wrong. Go back and look for the right answer. That's how a believer should approach that. There is another possibility. Well, actually, there are two more. One of them is a bit unthinkable. The other possibility is that the Bible is wrong. But then we're back to to that fundamental problem. If the Bible cannot be trusted in matters of history and, and references to science, if the Bible is not trustworthy in those realms, then how can we believe it? When it tells us of things we cannot investigate. And if God could not protect Bible writers 
from introducing myth and imagination and the prejudices of their limited perspective of their time, if God could not prevent them from introducing that into the history of Scripture, how do we think He could prevent them from introducing it into the eternal message of salvation? We cannot pick and choose. It's not part and parcel. Oh, I believe the message of the Gospel, but the Bible was written by human authors and it's full of error. You cannot go there. If the Bible is full of error, you cannot trust anything it has to say about eternal life. If God couldn't protect the Scripture from fundamental error in those realms, He could not protect it from introducing mistakes regarding spiritual truths. So, the conclusion could be that science is right and the Bible is wrong, but once you, would, once you go to that place, you must recognize that you have no foundation for your faith whatsoever. Because what court does that put it in when we, when we go there? Who, who makes the decision as to which one is right or wrong? You do. It's up to you. The investigator. Oh, I think this, or I don't think that. And friends, if the only thing we have to rely on in this planet is what you and I think, we are really in trouble. We are really in trouble. We have no authority. Do you follow me there? If it comes down to what you and I think is true, and and you have the same equipment I do, then we come to a realm where we cannot discover true truth. In fact, that's where we are in this country today in relativism. Your truth is valid for you and my truth is valid for me and let's everybody just get along because there is no true truth. It's just your truth and my truth. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. That means there is, there is nothing real. Some people actually believe that. But that's a whole other camp. But when you go there, there's, there's no way to sort it out. There's no way to find the truth. And here's the kicker. If the Bible is true, and if God has said what He has said about eternal life and salvation and judgment, and you get it wrong, you're going to have a very long and miserable time to think about it with no way out. Because hell is forever. And it's a place where the conscience never dies and the torment goes on unending. It's not a risk that we can take. So, so when we come back to looking at science in the Bible, you know, one, one option is science got it wrong. Another option is the Bible got it wrong. If you go that way, you're lost. I mean, you're really lost. You have no answers. Or the third solution is maybe you got the Bible wrong. That could be the case. That you misunderstood what the Bible actually said. And one of the things as we approach science in the Bible that that I think as believers we need to take very, very special care of is that we do not misrepresent God. I really think that Christians oftentimes are the biggest enemy God has in the representation of His truth. I was listening to a video last night that uh, some guy put together 
uh, PhD something or other, and he put together on, on creation in the Bible. I was just kind of listening to it uh, before I fell asleep. And um, one of the things that I thought right, right out of the gate as I started listening to this guy was he had cheap jokes, bad humor, he was arrogant, and in some realms he was just stupid. And, and that, that distressed me because I, I thought I would never, ever put this DVD in the hands of an unbeliever and say, listen to this guy's argument about creation and, and, and the, the proof of, of Scripture. Because even though he had good things to say about Genesis, he had bad stuff all through it. You know, and he, and he managed to, to speak against alcohol and tobacco in a lecture on creationism, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> and then on top of that, I found out, as I listened through it, he kept popping the scripture up on the screen in the King James Version. And I found out eventually that he believed it was the only valid translation of the Bible, that it was God-directed. And I thought, you're a nut. I mean, you're, you're just, you've lost your mind. No one is going to buy into the rest of what you say because you're acting like a fool. We need to be careful as believers in presenting the truth that we don't act like fools and that we don't say things about the Scripture that God hasn't said. So our exegesis, when we go to the Scripture to find out, God, what have you said here? We need to be precise. We need to be careful. We need to, to pay attention to the facts. We must not say any more or any less than what the Bible says. I will tell you, uh, by the way, I, I don't know if I've ever confessed this to you before, but I will this morning. I used to be an evolutionist. There was a time in my life when I was an evolutionist. So I've examined that question, and uh, it came up short, and so did I. That was, first of all, I realized I came up short. That was the beginning of, of getting a, a little more morally intelligent. And then I realized that the whole theory came up short. But that was, that was not, um, that was not the issue. But there are many things that I have thought through the years that I thought I understood. Only to read the scriptures more carefully and say, oh, that doesn't quite fit. Let me give you an example of one of those things that I have always believed about the early earth. I have always kind of bought into the canopy theory. Do you know what that is? That when, when you start reading in Genesis, you find that God created a firmament to set, separate the waters which were above the earth from the waters which were upon the earth. And the firmament he called heavens, and the waters above were separated from the waters below. And, and, I've, and I've always felt that that was, that was a good way to look at it, because... While we don't have any direct statement that it did not rain until the flood, we have a strong suspicion from Scripture that that's the case. And we have a very interesting verse in chapter 2 that says, God had not caused rain upon the earth at that time. A mist used to rise from the ground. You know what a terrarium is? It's kind of a closed system, and it maintains its own little ecosystem. I have some Petri dishes in one of my windowsills at home, I'm, I'm growing protist, protista, little uh, one-celled animals and, and bacteria. I take great joy in that. And every morning when I get up and look at my little Petri dishes in the sunlight, you know what I find? I find droplets of water forming on the top of them. 
because it evaporates out and it hits the lid of the dish and then it falls back down. And very little water escapes from the Petri dish. I have to open it every once in a while so they can get some fresh air. And then we kind of start over again. So we lose a little bit during, during the time it's open. But otherwise, it's a closed environment. Temperature stays nice. Everything stays fine. That's kind of like a terrarium. And the early earth, you know, I've always felt had this canopy on the top and this surface beneath. And the reason for that is, is because there's evidence of that within the, within the world. There is coal at Antarctica. You know what makes up coal, right? Trees and vegetation and forests. You can't have uh, fuels like that unless you had vegetation. How did vegetation get at Antarctica? By the way, there's none at the North Pole. Do you know why? There's no land at the North Pole. Okay, But there is land at the South Pole. And at one time, trees grew there. There was a forest or something because it has... These fuel deposits, okay. There's also woolly mammoths in Siberia that uh, died rather quickly and were quick frozen rather quickly. And they had vegetation in their digestive system that suggests that there was much more of a tropical environment in Siberia at some point in time. Now, evolutionists have some answers for some of these things, and it involves millions and millions and billions of years. But creationists have an answer for that, too. It involves a flood. But at any rate, that was kind of my concept until I started this series on Genesis in January. And I was reading chapter one with fresh eyes and I realized there's a flaw in my theory. I'm not throwing out the canopy concept, but I'm not sure Genesis one supports it. Let me explain why. Look with me in Genesis chapter one, verse uh, six, Genesis chapter one, verse six, the scripture says, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. Okay, you've got that picture in your mind? We had a bunch of water. Okay, and God got in the middle of it and went... And he, he put water on top and water on the bottom and made a water sandwich. And in the middle was this expanse. You got that in your mind? It's important that you see it. God made the expanse, separated the waters which were below from the waters which were above, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. Cool. So now we have an atmosphere. We have heaven. Water up there, water down here, and there's heaven in between. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered in one place, let the dry land appear, and that was so. So, so what we had was a ball of water with a outer part of water and heaven in the middle. And what does that kind of look like to you? It looks like a big canopy over the earth, right? The whole thing. Now here's the problem, verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. What's the expanse? From verse 6, what's the expanse? It's in the middle, right? Between the waters above and the waters below, there's the expanse. Then he says, let it separate day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights and the lesser light to govern the day, 
the, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars also. And where were they put? In the expanse. Uh-oh. Biblically, I have a problem with my theory because I have the sun and the moon and the stars inside my canopy. And that's a problem. It doesn't work exactly the way I thought it did. So I'm not throwing out the theory. I'm just saying that Genesis 1 does not precisely support it when you read it honestly. Interestingly enough, there is a new cosmologist slash mathematician who has studied the universe and has come up with an alternate theory to the Big Bang and the expanding universe. And his theory is that the entire universe was constructed, in essence, from a ball of water that expanded, and, and in the expansion of that water, that the outer far reaches of the universe actually have a water vapor uh, boundary out there, and that all of the heavens are... And he claims to have mathematical proof for this that so far has not been successfully defeated by other cosmologists who have a different viewpoint. What's my point? Don't say more or less than the Scripture says. Some questions are still open. You know, you can believe what God says without going to the mat today. Sometimes we have to give time for other things. And some answers we may never have before Jesus comes back. I don't know. The other thing that we have to guard against is interpretations of convenience that satisfy the scientific theories prevalent in our time. Because here's the problem. Science does change. And if you keep changing the Bible to fit the prevalent theory, where are you going to be when science moves on to something else? You're going to be standing there looking like a fool again. Because you just changed your whole exegesis to fit the theory. Did you know that hardly any evolutionist on the planet today believes the way Darwin taught it? They just don't. Because Darwin was wrong. And they know that. That's why there's a whole new movement called Neo-Darwinism. They're still evolutionists, but they've had to construct a different model because Darwin got it wrong. They're basing their new perspective on the concepts, but they're totally changing the, the construction of the argument. So when science changes, you're going to be left standing there with your mouth open saying, Oh boy, now I've got to go back to the drawing board. Let me give you an example of changing the interpretation to fit the times. This is the gap theory. Look in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Wow. I'm running out of time. My time and space and history don't fit my message. <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Somewhere in the late 1800s, a Hebrew scholar who was a strong Bible believer 
did some research in the Hebrew language, and he determined that this verb in verse 2, was, could legitimately be translated, became. And he did some study and some research, and he put this uh, exegesis out there. And other uh, Bible-believing scholars kind of researched it, and they kind of liked what they <coughs> were hearing. And so, um, ever, <coughs> ever since then, there has been uh, the idea, uh, moving around out there among Bible-believing people, that we can legitimately interpret the verb in verse 2 with the word became. Now, if we do that, let's read it again and see how it sounds. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became formless and void. And darkness became over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. How does that change our understanding of Genesis? Well, it separates verse 1 from verse 2. And it makes a separation at a key point. It says, by statement of fact, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. What beginning? Well, we don't know, but in the beginning, God did this. Then something happened. And the earth became empty and tumultuous and dark. And God started over. And He made the world we see now as a reconstruction of one that went afoul. So that, that's nice because it allows for a 14 billion year old universe. It allows for an earth that is hundreds and hundreds of millions of years old, billions of years old. It explains the dinosaurs and all the fossils and it solves all that problem because they existed in that old ancient earth and God redid everything a while back. Okay, here's the, here's the thing. There are problems with that theory. And when we get to this, I'm going to explain it in a little more detail and I'm going to tell you why I don't believe it. I'm also going to tell you why I'm not going to break fellowship with those who do. There are good Bible-believing people. I have a dear friend who believes this is true, and some of the great exegetes of the Old Testament believe this. But here's a curious thing. I cannot find one reference to this interpretation before Darwin. Nowhere in 1850 years of church history is there a single reference that I have been able to find that interprets the verb of verse 2 as became before Darwin. After Darwin, a Hebrew scholar amazingly came up with this insight. And that automatically raises suspicion. Because the question we have to ask ourselves is, Am I looking for a way to change the Bible to solve a problem with science? And we need to be careful not to do that. Because one day, science will move. It's fluid. And we're going to be left standing there with our jaws dropping. Like, why did I buy into that? Because it's 
always in flux. Now, the second major point as we start into this, do you all have a headache by now? Okay, you're still, you're still with me? You're tracking, you're awake. Some of you look a little bit in the zone. <laughs> All right. Here's the, here's the second thing. I, the, <clears throat> the first takeaway is there's no conflict between science and the Bible, and, and we need to, um, to honor God, and it's all right to investigate these realities, and we need to be careful in doing that. Okay, so that's your first takeaway. Second one is we need to understand that all theories of origin or origins is based on faith. None of them are based on science. You know, let me say that again. All theories of origins are based on faith. None of them are based on science. In fact, I will make this statement this morning and I will support it over the next few months. There is absolutely zero scientific evidence for evolution. There's none. There's also no scientific evidence for creation. We have to go at it a different way. All theories of origins are based on faith. Why do I say that? And I don't care if you're an aborigine in the middle of Australia or a Donny in the middle of the Bali Valley of Indonesia or a secular humanist or a Bible-believing biblical creationist. I don't care who you are. Whatever you think about how it all started is on the basis of faith. Science is the investigative process that is based upon observation, recording what you observe, being an accurate observer, writing it down, and presenting in a way that other people, if they wish to, can duplicate your experiment or your observation. If you're observing something in nature that is hard to write down, I mean hard to, to, to replicate in terms of a controlled experiment, other people, when they observe it, should see the same thing. You know, and, and, and they should see that over and over and over again. Um, and so, science is an investigative process that it requires observation, recording, and repeatability. Now guess what? No one observed creation. No one observed creation. No one was there. No one observed the formation of life. No one saw any of this happen. It's not scientific to say how it happened. It is based on assumptions and conjecture or revelation, wherever you're coming from, but it's not based on science. Even the so-called science of evolutionary investigation is based on a priori assumptions that cannot be proven. Key of which is the present is the key to the past. Let me explain a priori. A priori is a Latin term which means before the fact. Before you start, you put this foundation down. Why? Because you have to start somewhere. Okay? So, so where are we going to start? Well, scientists say we're going to start with the, 
assumption that things have always happened the way we see them happening now. And that's going to be the basis of our investigation. We're going to assume this is true. Now, the problem is, is that the assumption is not provable. How do you know that the present is the key to the past? How do you know that uniformitarianism, the consistency of the behavior of all things, how do you know that that's reality? How do you know that it wasn't different 6,000 years ago? How do you know? You don't know. You assume. Now, if you talk to a, a scientist who buys into this, they will explain to you, somewhat pedantically, but of course, it's only logical, and you must begin somewhere. Okay, but how do you know? Well, you must begin somewhere, and it's only logical. But how do you know that your logic is accurate? How do you know that your beginning premises are correct? Well, stupid, you have to start somewhere. You, you read the literature. This is literally how they come across. But why? Well, if we didn't believe that, anything goes. Well, duh. You can't prove it. And so you must accept that initial premise on the basis of faith. You must believe that it's true and start from there. But you have no way to prove that the foundation is true. If you've never studied logic... Let me explain something about logic. You can have a valid argument, an argument that is logically valid from start to finish, and it ends up with totally false conclusions. The whole thing falls apart. Because an argument can be valid in proper form, and and all of the steps make sense. But if your premise is wrong, the whole thing fails like a house of cards in the wind. Okay, if you start out with the wrong premise, no matter how good the argument, you come at the end and you're all wrong. How many of you uh, like um, the, the great artists, the masters of the past? Are any of you here artists you like going to art museums? Okay, a few of you. How, how do they know that, that Rembrandt did this painting, you know, no matter who may have signed it? How do they know that this is an original, a valid thing, as opposed to a fake or somebody else? I mean, how do you pick that out? Style. You know, you look, you can examine their techniques, their styles, their, they, they come at it the same way. How about architecture? Any of you into architecture? I'm not a big architect person. I, I'm fascinated by architecture, but I'm, I'm not really all that knowledgeable about it. But, um, but Frank Lloyd Wright has, has some interesting ways of going about things. And I remember going into the city, I think it was Lakeland, and um, where my brother lives now, and I was going in there, and there's a university there in, in Lakeland. And I, and I looked, and I said, boy, that looks like something Frank Lloyd Wright would have designed. And uh, sure enough, that's who designed it. I found out it was a famous landmark, Frank Lloyd Wright. Shows you how much I know. But anyway, I just looked at it and I said, that, that looks like him to me. Okay? My point here in this is, when you look at animal forms that are similar, 
do you look at them and say, oh, that's an example of the phylogy of the organisms that one came from the other came from the other because look how similar they are as you go down the tree. Or you can say, huh, I've noticed that all Rolex watches have those characteristics. They must have been made by the same person. I've noticed that all of these animals show the evidence of a single designer. It depends on your starting point, friends, as to how you come at it. And that may leave you feeling a little shaky right now. In the few coming weeks, I'm going to be giving you evidence out there that is totally harmonious with the Scripture. And I will tell you freely that evolutionists will look at the same evidence and draw a different conclusion. And there will be a whole body of evidence where both of us stare at the same stuff and say, we don't know what this means. We have no answers for this. Okay, but the point is, the foundational premise is still one of faith, not science. You have to believe something and move from there. And what you believe about origins is based entirely on your faith, not on the scientific method. It is not possible to prove creation or evolution in the laboratory. That cannot be done. There has to be a different approach. Finally, I want to point you to Jesus. I want to encourage you that according to Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of a king to search it out. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Friends, the pursuit of science is a noble pursuit. It disturbs me when I see Christians who are shrinking back and not wanting to engage at this level because God speaks to us in two ways. Three, actually, although the second one is a subpoint of special revelation. God speaks to us in nature. And he speaks to us in his word. And the writer of Hebrews says in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. But friends, listen to what Paul writes in Romans. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Let me read that again, because this is an astounding summation of what we can learn about God from nature. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, 
nature reveals the glory and the character of God. And if you come at the pursuit of scientific investigation with a heart of humility, seeking the glory of God, you will find that the pursuit itself is an act of worship and you will be astounded at what you discover. I remember the first time in my class in emergency medicine that we got into studying arrhythmias and understanding what goes wrong when the heart gets out of rhythm. And I'm looking at this evolution, and I'm using that now in a good sense, in the progress of something, in the evolution of heart arrhythmias, heart irregularities, I discovered an amazing thing. And in fact, the very textbooks in cardiology affirm this, that the disintegration of heart arrhythmias follows a pattern of a heart that is struggling to stay alive. So that if the sinus node quits, the atria take up the heartbeat. It's a little irregular, but it's there. And if the atria fail, the junctional node takes up the driving force of the heartbeat. You can usually tell a junctional rhythm because it flatlines out, and flatline, it flattens out at about 60 beats per second. Not any faster, because it can't go any faster without help. And if the junction fails, the ventricles pick up the beat at 30 to 40 beats per second. And if everything fails, all the individual cells of the heart keep trying to beat. That's called fibrillation, time for the paddles. It's not very organized, but the effort is still being exerted. And I looked at that. And by the way, it's just a few arrhythmias. There's a bunch of trailies for each one. But I looked at that and I said, this is amazing. God has designed the human heart with about 25 fail-safe mechanisms. It just won't quit. It's phenomenal. God has wired this thing to have a backup for the backup for the backup for the backup. I was just astounded. And then I got into the nervous system, and I realized that the diameter of a single nerve fiber, if it is a few angstrom units, that's smaller than a micron, which is one thousandth of a millimeter, that's as little, if it's a few angstrom units wider, it won't work. And if it's a few angstroms smaller, it's too slow and won't get there on time. Who needs a reflex? It takes one minute to make the circuit if your hand's on a hot stove. It has to be precise, and it has to be precise for each species. You couldn't spend a few hundred thousand years trying to perfect the nervous system in human beings. It has to work from day one, or it doesn't work. And I looked at that, and I said, that's amazing. That is astounding. God is so clever. He's designed every organism with just what it needs to do, just what it needs to do. And it works perfectly. And there aren't any in-betweeners. You either have this or you have this. Now, granted, other animals have nervous systems. They have brains and spinal cords and all those kind of things. But 
there's differences that are not replicable. And so the more we investigate, the more we are astounded at the glory of God. And whether that's in the scientific laboratory or whether it's in the park, watching the stream, seeing a blue heron taking off from fishing at the dam, it's full for the morning, away it goes, and watching how it begins. I have some photographs of the beginning flight pattern of a blue heron. It's amazing how they get those wings up and start to purchase air, and then they finally get airborne. And I just look at that and I say, this is, this is incredible. Look at the color change in a variegated tulip and see the depth and the beauty and the glory. And the other morning I drove in the parking lot and the sun was coming through the lilies out there. They were backlit and they glowed like orange fire on top of the fence rail. And I was just astounded at the glory of God. Friends, if your heart is one to worship, you find God all over the place. You find his glory, his majesty, his beauty, his magnificence. You find his creative genius. You find his wisdom. You find his love and his mercy and his grace. And even in a fallen world, you see the vestiges of his glory. Even in a world that's been marred and damaged in the beauty of what he's made, there is no reason not to pursue the search if you start from the right premise. The Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we begin this study that you would give us encouragement and blessing. But I'm thankful to tell you this morning that I don't need scientific proof to believe your truth. I have seen in my own life the need of a Savior. And in coming to acknowledge you as my Lord and Savior and the payment that you made on the cross, I've come into a personal relationship with you. And in that relationship, there has been the witness of the Holy Spirit and the affirmation of truth to which all the world simply gives testimony. And I praise you this morning and I give you glory. I pray that we would become worshiping people who worship everywhere at all times. And that we would not be afraid of the search for truth because when we come to the end of the trail, you are always there waiting for us. Praise your holy name. Amen.